Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And, and my guest today is Tony Kinnett, who definitely qualifies as interesting people. Um, he is a science coordinator for Indianapolis Public Schools, um, and he is also the founder of Chalkboard Review, which I highly recommend you checking out. It's a website that publishes heterodox um, thoughts from teachers across the political spectrum. It's meant to be a corrective to a what often is like a, a um, sort of monocultural voice coming out of, quote unquote, the education establishment. Um, but it is not limited to those on the right. It is, is very ideologically heterodox. Um, and you might have also caught his columns in National Review, Daily Caller, Federalist, elsewhere. Or you might have caught him on Tucker Carlson um, early, like last week. I guess this is going to be released on Wednesday. So um, late last week where he discussed a viral video of his where he talked about whether or not critical race theory was being taught in public schools, specifically in the schools that he has been working in, in Indianapolis. And, and we can assume that it's not just in Indianapolis, but welcome, Tony. It's so great to have you on High Noon. Thank you very much for having me on. Um, I really want to just start out by playing your viral video here. And it has had hundreds of thousands of views, I think, right at this point. Um, it, it has really, truly gone viral because I think you really connect to the gaslighting that is going on surrounding this topic, particularly post-Virginia election, about whether or not we are teaching critical race theory in public schools. So I'll just, you know, knock that video out in the beginning and then we can talk about it. I'm the science coach and admin in the largest public school district in Indiana. I'm in dozens of classrooms a week, so I see exactly what we're teaching our students. When we tell you that schools aren't teaching critical race theory, that it's nowhere in our standards, that's misdirection. We don't have the quotes and theories as state standards per se. We do have critical race theory in how we teach. We tell our teachers to treat students differently based on color. We tell our students that every problem is a result of white men and that everything Western civilization built is racist. Capitalism as a tool of white supremacy. Those are straight out of Kimberly Crenshaw's main points, verbatim in critical race theory, the writings that formed the movement. This is in math, history, science, English, the arts, and it's not slowing down. If students of color have lower reading scores, it's because of inequity. Therefore, we take from the white students and give to the color students. That's Richard Delgado, straight out of CRT and introduction. All teaching is political, with reality and facts taking the back seat. That's Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings, who outlined how she saw critical race theory flushed out in public schools in 1995. When schools tell you that we aren't teaching critical race theory, it means one thing. Go away and look into our affairs no further. It isn't about... Um, I'll just stop the video there, but it's well worth uh, it's worth listening to and viewing in full. So, you know, what, what, first of all, let me just start with this, this personal question. You know, what made you decide to make this video? Because, you know, you're sharing stuff about what's being taught in your schools. Um, you knew that this was going to be controversial. You were going to get backlash for it, perhaps in your workplace. You know, why did you decide to make this video? I think it was just the straw that broke the camel's back. Quite honestly, uh, there had been several incidents uh, in Indianapolis over the last couple of years that have been really frustrating. Uh, things that have certainly soured my opinion of the district. But I would have to say that one of the key things that really pushed me over the edge where I was like, you know what, it's finally time someone has to know about this is when our district sent out an email at the beginning of the year to principals. And then it was forwarded to district uh, central office staff, which I'm a part of, but which said that if a parent asks if we're teaching critical race theory, we say we're not. And I thought, well, okay, this is, sounds like kind of semantics, but all right, maybe, you know, even though we're teaching the essence of critical race theory, at least we're not sitting around back here laughing about it. 
Uh, and then on October the 18th, we had Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings for a district-wide professional development. And she was telling us all about how teaching is political and uh, how racial equity means that you have to treat students differently based on their color in order to achieve success. And then the racial equity PDs from the day literally talk about how critical race theory is good and how it's essential that we use it in our district. And I was like, that's a lot. So I started pushing some of it out there. And then right after uh, Glenn Youngkin's election in Virginia, now the talking point is that not only is critical race theory teaching history, which it's not, not only is critical race theory not being taught in K through 12 education, which it is, uh, but now critical race theory doesn't even exist. It's just a figment of our imaginations. And I was like, no, from an administrator in public school, very, very incorrect. Here's what someone who studied critical race theory for eight years actually can say about it. Um. Yeah, you know, one of the the things that was most enraging uh, that you say in your video and in some of your other tweets and work is that literally you were instructed to tell parents that there was no critical race theory in the schools after everything that you just said, right? Um, it was an active attempt to cover up what was infused into the curriculum. I mean, um, what it, what are your relationships with parents? Have you personally um, had parents come to you and ask you, for example, what's in the materials? Are you teaching critical race theory? Um, and, and what even prior to this, this edict that the school district kind of sent around to everybody, um, what were you telling them? Um, how were you interacting with parents who are concerned about this? So the few parents that I've interacted with at my level, I'm not speaking directly with a lot of parents. This was sent out to say, if a parent talks to you, which they're more likely going to talk to principals, um, then I normally wouldn't be in the contact with a lot of parents. However, because I was put in charge of the science curriculum adoption, uh, which was delayed last year and now we're going through with, one of those tasks is speaking with parents about Indianapolis science curriculum and uh, moving forward, maybe getting a parent on the adoption committee. And I have had a few parents ask us about certain aspects. And uh, in every single situation, I have been very forthright and honest. I, even though the district said, hey, tell parents something different, um, I'm not going to lie to a parent. That's a, that's a big no, no. As both a teacher and, and a curriculum coordinator, um, let me ask you kind of a big picture question. What do you think the relationship between parents and those that are teaching, right? So either educators or people in the district, um, in a taxpayer funded school, what do you think the relationship between those two groups of people who are so important in shaping a child's life and, and learning and worldview ought to be? And then what do you think are the major problems with that relationship today? I would say that the central focus of any great teacher-parent relationship needs to be on close contact. I think that a great relationship in the education system consists of parents and teachers confiding in each other, confiding in each other about what's going on in the school, confiding in each other about what's going on with the kid, confiding in each other about what the teacher's concerns are and what the parents' concerns are. I mean, that's certainly what my parent-teacher relationships were like, whether I was in uh, mostly white rural Indiana or, you know, very diverse inner city Indianapolis or Milwaukee. And I think those relationships cannot be valued enough. Realistically, I think that the teacher should be listening to what standards the parent wants to hold at home. And then the parent should be listening when the teacher says, here's how I tried to accomplish what you've set forth in the home. And here's when it worked and here's when it didn't work. And uh, realistically, it's a lot harder for a student to play the teacher and the parent off of each other when the teacher and parent are speaking more. I think that it's fallen apart in the United States because of kind of a uh, an apathy 
Uh, for a long time, you didn't really need to care about education. Yeah, you could send your kid off to school and expect they'd get a pretty decent education. And so that kind of fell to the wayside. A lot of parents are busy. A lot of teachers are a little more closed off than perhaps they used to be. Of course, electronic communication, while making things similar, has also made people a little more distant, a little more chipped and clipped in their re replies. Um, I'd say it's probably also been damaged a lot by the IEP and a special education focus in education. Um, a lot of parents get really protective once they learn that their children have some kind of specific disability. And then all of a sudden, everyone kind of becomes a foe in the room to be dealt with. So I think that those are kind of some of the key issues that have made things a bit sticky. Um, I wanted to ask you then, if, if, if let's say that we follow this, this more idealized version of the, the cooperation between parents and teachers, I mean, who, who ought to be in charge at the end of the day um, about what kids actually learn in a public school, in a taxpayer-funded school? Because we've seen articles, for example, in the Washington Post that have repeated what Terry McAuliffe you know, said out loud um, during the, the uh, Virginia gubernatorial debates, right? That, in fact, there isn't a right for parents to control um, what their children are learning in a public school and and that it's really ought to be up to the quote unquote experts, right? That the, the teachers mm -hmm. and the administrators uh, are the ones who have experience in curriculum and pedagogy. And um, therefore they should be the ones deciding what children learn, even about sticky political or, or moral issues. Well, at the end of the day, it's the parent's child. The parent should get to decide what the child is taught when, how, and why. Now, the parent should have a certain sense of responsibility. Um, there is no reason that a parent should be apathetic about their child's education. There's no reason a parent should be lax about how their child is growing because there is a lot of investment that goes into a kid and how um, that child is going to turn out. A lot more investment into rearing a child will yield more likely than not a more highly functioning child, let's say, you know, a, a better functioning adult in modern society and the economy. As far as individuals saying that parents shouldn't have a say in the classroom, I, I understand the argument that, you know, experts should be listened to and the advice of experts should be taken. But at no point in time does the expert get to say, because I have a lot of knowledge in this, therefore I get to tell you what to do. No, um, I go into the doctor's office and the doctor offers advice and then I can choose whether or not to take that advice. Now, there are cases where two different doctors are going to disagree with each other and the doctor takes in as much information as they can. And then when they give you that answer, you can choose to take it or not. In education, it's certainly not as rigorous as, as the medical field. Um, and so when I hear what you are suggesting to me, all of the data that I'm taking in, I make a suggestion. And if you don't like it, I don't have ownership over your child. I'm a teacher. Um, and especially, especially on the taxpayer's dime, it's your money and it's your kid. And so realistically, the parent is definitely um, at the top of the mountain when it comes to deciding what happens with children's education. So this is not the first time you have kind of poked the bear, right, uh, in, in your district. Um, you had an incident a while back and you, you tweeted about it a little bit um, and talked about it in other contexts. But could you recount for the listeners what happened to you when you did the extremely controversial thing? Um, you tweeted out, you retweeted a obituary that was not wholly um, wholly negative about Rush Limbaugh when he died. Uh, how how did your school district and your fellow, I guess your colleagues within the school district react to that? 
Um, and just, just tell us a little bit about that story. It was a dark and stormy night. Um, <laughs> Rush Limbaugh had, had passed away. And uh, in, in that amount of, of time, I sent out a tweet um, saying, really, in essence, thankful for Rush Limbaugh and the work that he did for uh, independent journalists of, of all kinds, left, right, and center. He made independent journalism a viable thing, and he encouraged it. And that was what I was appreciative of because in my hobby time outside of my work in education, I'm an education policy journalist. I spent a lot of time researching education policy and the impacts that it has on communities and individuals. And so I felt grateful. I sent out that tweet. A colleague of mine was very, very, very upset uh, by that tweet. He actually sent a couple of different emails to our chief academic officer, Dr. Morgan, outlining all of these terrible things that I was. He said that I wanted uh, ownership over his black body. Uh, he cited that I was uh, like a scourge on the district, that I should be fired, that the person who hired me should be fired, and that I was just all of these just horrible things, one after the other after the other. And they pull me into this HR meeting because, you know, there are these, these complaints that are being made. And they bring me in and the HR person is very quick to say, this is not disciplinary. This is not disciplinary. But we just wanted to talk to you about some concerns that you might have had regarding this, this situation. And uh, first of all, we want to make sure you know that what he did in, in reaching out to us and in reaching out to you, because the individual also texted me, was very brave. It was very brave of him to, to reach out to you and, and, and air his concerns. And I thought, like, he calls me all of those things and you, you're calling him brave? what? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It was, it was wild. Uh, that was the first moment when I really knew how the, the, the cards were dealt in the district. Uh, they gave the official line, we cannot police your Twitter. Um, and then the chief academic officer made this very clear. He's like, but, but you do need to be aware that as a leader in the district, people are looking at your Twitter. People are looking at what you're saying and your colleagues may not want to work with you based on the things that you're saying on your Twitter. And I thought, okay, well, that's not really my problem, is it? And we ended the HR meeting and, and went on. And that was kind of the end of that incident. That was the first time uh, that I realized kind of, you know, which uh, side of the bread, the butter was on. Um, and there have been a couple times since then, right? So what what is your current kind of read on, because one of the things I love about the way that you talk about this issue is that you highlight that it truly is, and I know this is Ibram Kendi's favorite word, but systemic, right? Um, right. It's a perspective that's woven into, it's not a matter of, as you say, just, you know, a line in the curriculum. It's a perspective that's woven into schools of education, that's woven into licensing, that's woven into teacher training, right? Um, but most of the the people who work for the district, they have this perspective. Um, and, and so there's, I guess, what can somebody do depending on, I guess I'm asking several different questions, you know, how do you as a teacher sort of push back against, against some of that, um, knowing that you're inside that system and you're well, always going to be treated unfairly. Well, the first thing would be, it's very interesting that the Indianapolis public school systems, HR office, uh, excuse me, employee relations office, they, they call it ER, um, treats me very differently than the other offices do. Uh, because from what I can tell the employee relations office works very differently than the other offices do because they actually have to work within the legal framework. Um, what the racial equity office is doing with its racial affinity groups that were reported on a while ago and uh, with regards to what the school district is, is doing as a whole and some of its strategic priorities may not be exactly legal, 
Um, they're certainly very morally questionable, but the HR office can't come out and, and support that, or you get into Title VI and Title VII violations. And the AHR office also can't persecute and prosecute individuals specifically for disagreeing with the racial equity office and basically these school policies that the school board passed. And so they, they kind of have to walk this tightrope. And it's, it's so funny to watch. And I don't mind saying that it's funny to watch because uh, in this first HR meeting, um, Dr. Morgan would say something and then HR would immediately like walk back his statement. And then Dr. Morgan would say something else. And then, cause so I would say uh, I'm a science teacher and as a scientist, I don't believe in the concept of race. I believe in the concept of a human group that has slightly physiological differences that mean absolutely nothing. And that it's culture, not color that makes the difference. And he got offended by that and said, well, I'm as a, as a black man, I'm very proud of who I am in my position. And then HR had to walk him back for disagreeing with me. It was, it was quite humorous. So throughout all of this, I guess I would say that kind of realizing where I could poke and where I couldn't. Um, and also like, I'm not just poking to poke. Um, I, although I know the, the video looks like I'm just out for another, you know, 15 minutes of fame and I'm trying to get out in front of everyone. I broke all of this data a month ago. Like I, I broke all of this stuff that I talked about in the video a full month ago. Uh, it's just knowing that the HR team can't tell me not to be active in politics. And they also can't tell me not to share public information. So if all of this information on school servers is public, I'm free to talk about it. And if they want to fire me for political views, that would be a very awkward and very guilty thing to do. So it's just kind of knowing what you can do, what you can't do. And then I will also say that I was blessed to have already written a lot of content at that point. And so it's kind of hard to say you can't be a conservative education policy journalist and work here when I'd already written a couple places and had done a lot of stuff in conservative politics. Yeah, because we never hear this conversation, right, um, with the advocacy on the left. Uh, oh, we yeah. never hear that it's inappropriate uh, for teachers to engage in advocacy, even outside of the classroom, which is what you are doing, right? Um, yeah. Uh, you are expressing your personal opinion, which you have a First Amendment right to do outside of the classroom, right? Mm -hmm. um, but for all of the parents especially post this election, right? In Virginia, it's been nonstop um, since that election. It's been nonstop gaslighting from a lot of folks in the media about the fact that, as you said, it went from, you know, um, critical race theory is a niche law school theory. It's never been taught outside of law school uh, to it doesn't even exist. Right. Um, right. And, but the number I've been shocked by the number of mainstream outlets who have or, or news anchors um, who have said flatly without any attempt to sort of weasel word their way out of it, um, have said flatly critical race theory is not taught in Virginia. Yeah. Right. Um, when there are examples on the actual Board of Education um, in the Department of Education in Virginia talking about introducing a critical race theory lens. I mean, documents very similar to what you point out, um, point to in your video about Indianapolis mm -hmm. public schools, which have the same dictate. Tell parents this is not in our schools. Right. Um, if, if you're a parent and you feel completely maddened by this um kind of switch to pretend that this isn't happening, these things that you are observing um, in, in your child's school aren't happening. You know, what is your advice for, for parents who are running into, let's say, somebody who's not so conscientious and they are just saying what the district is telling them, which is critical race theory is not in the schools. I mean, what do you do if you hit that brick wall as a parent? If you can, leave. 
that's the best advice that I have at the moment. If you can't leave because, you know, socioeconomically, you're not in a position where you can afford to send your child somewhere else, which is understandable, or there aren't any charter slots available, et cetera, then I would suggest that you go to the principal and echo your concerns. If the principal doesn't care or gives you, you know, the soft handed, they're there, it's very important. And, you know, the conservative media guy is just a big wrong meanie. Then you go to the superintendent and echo those concerns. Or in, in our case, you would go to the executive director of schools, who's like a mini superintendent. Then you would go to the superintendent. Superintendent, they don't care. Then elect a better school board. Skip the going and preening in front of the school board step. It's not going to do anything. I mean, it, it it's not actually going to change anybody's minds. Go elect a better school board. And then bring in a better superintendent, get rid of the old one, and bring in someone who's going to keep the principals and the teachers accountable. Make sure they're not wasting millions of dollars a year bringing in racial equity groups to fill your kids' heads with a bunch of racial essentialist garbage and force your teachers to waste hours of their time preening and posturing over things that are not doing a thing for our students of color. So let's talk policy then. Um, So aside from um, cause, cause I sort of share your views. I mean, I, I think that it's really wonderful that so many parents are going out to the school boards. And I think that those confrontations are often really important in the school board elections, um, in terms of, of providing evidence for where the school board actually stands. Yeah. They can definitely um, have their place. Yeah. But I, I let, let's talk about policy other than electing a new school board because, um, and there's policy that goes into that too. Like I think a lot of people are not aware. I'm sure you're super hyper aware of the fact that um, in many states, uh, school board elections are not aligned to statewide election, um, right. which means that the turnout can be four percent, right? So um, th- these are not. It, there are some folks who are constantly talking about democratically accountable schools. Four percent turnout is not democratically accountable right. uh, in a lot of these cases. But aside from electing a new school board. What are the policy levers that you think are the most important? What are the most important policy things that need to change that say a state legislature should look into or um, somebody, a parent who's concerned that their voice is just going nowhere in, in those school board confrontations besides energetically opposing those school board members or maybe running themselves for that slot? What can mm. they do when they talk to their state legislator, for example? What kind of policies are we going to, what are the best policies to really take on the the sort of systemic nature of this, the blob nature of this? So I would say that three policies really come to mind. The first and foremost is going to be that schools need to be stripped of their uh, monopoly rights in which that I don't believe that schools should be the public schools should be the only place that you can send your tax dollars with your student. I do believe that you're a tax paying individual so that you should be able to decide where your student goes. Now, in some states, that looks more like a voucher program. In some states, that's more of an education savings account. There are many different ways and forms that school choice legislation can take. And I think that by looking at your local state think tank, your policy institutes that are outlining why this is the best case for your state and you know contingent with your state's constitution is probably one of the most important policy moves that you can make in support. Number two, I think the Goldwater Institute's approach on school curricular transparency is an absolute home run slam dunk of a policy at the district level, at the state level. To sum that up in a hopefully an easy to use form, it is the idea that whatever your teacher uses that day in my class, if I'm going to show a video, if I'm going to post an article, a worksheet, whatever, it goes onto a Google Doc. 
I just slap the link right onto the Google Doc, put the worksheet right there. And then that Google Doc goes up on the district website so that any parent in the district can see exactly what I am using in my classroom. That way, concerned parents can see the physical material that is being taught. And most often, based on how the videos and how the articles and how all of that is, is shared with students, can get a little bit of a window into the lens with which that material is viewed. I think that giving parents that transparency is really going to do a lot in this. And the last policy I would advocate for is licensure reform. There's no reason that teachers should be expected to go to hundreds of hours worth of professional developments for racial equity and for all of the social emotional garbage that isn't really do anything. Teachers can't really stand it. They roll their eyes at most of it. And it's not actually making our teachers better. I think that teacher licensing and professional development renewal, uh, we should start looking away, looking at doing away with it as a whole. You know, completely agree with you on the on the transparency thing. Our sister organization, Independent Women's Voice, actually has a, a petition for um, transparency, and and the amount of pushback is really, really just like the the line about tell parents there's no CRT in the schools that you observed. I mean, it's so revealing uh, right. of how difficult it is to get a hold of what's actually being taught. And and I mean, what do you think the impact of, of sort of Zoom school and the pandemic has had um, on all of this? Because it, it seems to me it's one of the first times that parents directly had it, you know, could hear what their kids were learning in a lot of cases. So when's the last time that you checked the oil in your car? I, I don't have a car anymore, but I was so bad at that. Like when I did Okay, <laughs> right. So the, the average American doesn't usually check the oil in their car every week. They wait for the light to come on, then they go and get it serviced. And that's apathy. That's not a bad apathy, but that's, that's apathy. I don't have to worry about that. I don't really care about it. Something else is taking care of it for me. American education has become apathetic in the last decade, the last two decades, you could send your kid off to school. They would learn what they needed to, as long as they turned in their work, as long as you were kind of on your kid to pay attention and get good grades. Most of the time, statistically, your kid would turn out pretty well. However, pandemic rolls around and basically the country as a collective was forced to open the hood and look at what was underneath. And we did not like what we saw. And so I think that one of the reasons the reaction was so sharp is honestly, and this is a couple of parents have told me this one specifically from Southern Illinois comes to mind that they're embarrassed that they didn't know what was going on in the classroom. And I'm not saying it's their fault. And I'm not saying that, you know, there, there are individuals here to blame for not paying attention. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. And in the same way that we don't check our oil and that's not a bad thing. I am saying though, that now that we've opened the hood, I think that we need to take a serious look. The pandemic was a great lever for that because the nation collectively looked under the hood of the classroom together. And what was seen was able to be easily spread and shared because we were all on our screens and on social media anyway. And so this reaction hit like a tidal wave. And of course, we're still feeling the effects for it because after you check the hood under your, after you check under the hood of your car and something's wrong for the next couple of weeks, you're going to be popping the hood every once in a while, just to make sure that everything's running as it should to look for additional problems. Um, what has the reaction been? You told me a little bit about the reaction from the district to some of the material that you're putting out, but, um, have you gotten any feedback from people who might otherwise stay quiet, like your fellow teachers or, or parents, um, from your district? I mean, what has the feedback been to you actually kind of stepping into the arena and, and showcasing what 
as you say, are public documents, just things that until now when we were checking under, you know, we, we weren't checking under the hood. We weren't mm. um, looking at those kinds of documents that are posted to some, you know, small section of, of the district website. So what's the reaction been to the materials that you're posting from folks within the system um, who might have otherwise even not thought about it um, or to, from parents themselves? So I have been reached out to by a few parents who are, they just told me since we've seen the materials, we're pulling our kid from the district. Uh, we're enrolling them in one of the local Catholic schools. We're enrolling them in one of the private schools. We're just getting them out of IPS, um, which to me, that makes the whole thing worth it because these are parents that would have left if they were honest about it. And so they weren't IPSs to begin with. Does that, you know what I'm saying there? Right. Like they, I think that all of that is kind of justified in that sense. I have gotten some good responses and some very angry responses from teachers a few teachers have reached out to me. I am up to 11 uh, who have specifically stated that they're really glad I'm doing this. They feel scared. There's one teacher that tells a story that after um, the November elections, a lot of uh, people in her school were saying like really, really dangerous and violent things about conservatives in general. And so she's been really terrified, really working where she is. She she feels like she's being watched. And I, I hate that for anybody. So I, I'm very thankful to receive those comments although it really weighs on me quite a bit uh, with some of the content. A couple of administrators, uh, which is kind of wild, um, have reached out to me or their spouses have reached out to me and said, hey, I can't legally come out and support you at this point, but I want you to know that I am on your side and I like what you're doing. That's been pretty cool. One principle in specific, I had no idea. I would have never guessed in a million years. Um, so that's been cool. A couple of teachers have been very angry. One guy uh, messaged me on Facebook and he was very, very angry and he, he didn't want to talk. He just wanted to yell. Um, and he basically accused me of making everything up. And then I started sending him links and he blocked me, um, which was, that was pretty funny. And then the one teacher on Twitter, he went off on how I was, you know, he was ashamed to have taught with me. And, um, he was, you know, just shame, shame, you know, swinging the bell back and forth. So that's kind of been the reaction as a whole. Um, how, how is it that, how do you think we can encourage more people to come forward within the education system and, and do what you've done? Because, and I, I'm not sure I actually um, am as optimistic sort of as, as you are, but you point to one, oftentimes point to one 2017 survey that says that teachers are about a third, a third, a third, just like the American public, a third consider themselves on the left, a third consider themselves moderate, a third consider themselves conservative. Um, so, you know, I guess, how do we get more teachers who do step forward, who do start fighting from within the system? Um, and how do we help them? That's, that's one. And two, you know, what can we do to encourage that all important quality, like in, in a broader sense, um, not just within the education system, but in, in our politics as a whole? I mean, it's been a theme of this podcast, uh, that we we simply have to get over that, that courage barrier that people mm, that the right. 65% of Americans who are not um, who are self-censoring, their political views are going to have to stop doing that even at enormous cost. Um, so, you know, I guess one, are, are you right that there are a lot of sort of, um, let's not even say conservative, but teachers who do not want to teach this kind of radical curriculum and, and how do we get, how do we get them to step forward? Like you've done. 
So uh, to, I'll, I'll answer your, your third question first, and then I'll, I'll go back and work my way for the, for, for the first two. I ask a lot of questions in the row on this podcast. Oh, you know, you know that's why I like you, Ness. I'm, I'm, I'm a, uh, <laughs> I'm, I, I tend to throw like 16 questions at people all at once. I, I will answer as many of them as I can. And then the ones that ADHD forgets, you can always, you know, throw at me later. <laughs> so as far as your third question, which was on, do I really believe that it's a third, a third, a third in Indianapolis? No. Uh, that was a broad survey of kind of the entire country's teachers. Um, you know, surveys do occasionally get things wrong. I mean, that's statistics in nature. You know, you can't actually accurately posit everything, no matter how hard that you try. I will say that I believe in Indianapolis, it's probably about half of the teachers that are on the left. I'd say there's a very small minority of conservatives. There's a lot of teachers, though, that just want to come in and teach and they want to leave. Um, they are tired of all of the nonsense. They're tired of the pageantry. Um, I don't think that a lot of them are malicious in their like left leftist beliefs. I'd say it's more naivety in cases um, that's encouraged kind of by a collective. I would say to encourage teachers to speak out, I would say celebrate the work that they do when they when they actually come out. It starts with support. So since I started writing in conservative education policy, I've received a ton of support from individuals in the group that have said, you know, we're really proud of what you're doing, what you and Buck are doing at the chalkboard review. And so we try to pass that on to our teachers. When we have someone who writes for us, left, right, or center, we try to celebrate that. I mean, even if it's a stinky article, I try to tell them that I enjoyed having them write for us and, you know, write for us again. And maybe we'll have an editor work on some of their ideas and how it's it's flowing. I want to encourage more teachers to speak out. Uh, knowing your policy and your rules and, and what they can and can't fire you for are important. Um, there are some in, for example, CERN who disagree with me on that. They're like, well, you can be fired for anything. They can snap your fingers and you can dissolve in midair. I don't know if I quite agree with that. Um, especially with modern culture, uh, it's a lot less easy as we're finding out right now with Indianapolis that you can't just like flick your, you know, wrist and I just magically evaporate. It doesn't quite work like that. There are consequences as for encouraging. So that's the, your first question that you asked. As to the broader context of how do we as a society really start encouraging people to hold groups and individuals accountable to, you know, really combat that systemic organizational bias, I would suggest that it's really the responsibility of the people who want a really comfortable life to provide for a comfortable life. You can't make the United States a better place by going and trying to live the same life that your parents had. The United States is not the same place that it was in the 1950s and 60s and 70s and you know as it changed as as time went on i i a lot of my family did not want me to do this at all in fact they bemoaned the fact that i was a conservative education policy journalist and they wanted me to stay in knightstown indiana and teach for 30 years and keep my head in the sand and then retire that was and they're very open with me i mean they agree with me and they're proud of me and the work that we're doing but that's what they want me to do you can't do that is this culture anywhere? I don't care what job you have. You are currently being told by large groups of people that you need to join with them or you need to have certain rights revoked and freedoms and privileges revoked. And they're very open in saying that. You have to join in. You can no longer afford to be the person who doesn't care about politics. And I, I it's weird to say that. I'm not trying to encourage everyone to go pick up a torch, but you do have a responsibility now to be informed and to be able to hold your ground in a conversation. I I really think I couldn't have put that better myself. I don't think anybody has put it better. I think it's it's so critical. 
and I always feel bad, you know, in, in some sense talking about this because I know as much as we yak about privilege, I, I truly feel privileged in in these conversations because I work for such a great employer, IWF. Um, I am literally paid to say the things that I say um, so and, and to write the things <laughs> that that I write, and and I, I realize that that is an enormous privilege in 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 America where the institutions really have been taken over by this very illiberal part of the left that i i am totally honest and upfront with people when i say that you need to step forward i understand what that means it means you may lose your job it means you may lose your ability to feed your family and i, I it's really difficult for me to say you know I, I understand why people don't do that but the reality right. is if more people don't do what you do um this this the the train we're on is not going to stop without enough people getting off of it and, you know, slamming on the brakes publicly. Um, and, and so I think I really admire what you've done in that regard. Um, let me ask you just to, to kind of close out this conversation. What do you think the role of education should be, um, at a time when we see the, the political tectonic plates, both, you know, of the Republican and democratic party, but also the underlying movements of the left and right in America, um, seem to be completely in motion and fluid in a way that they weren't, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, where does the issue of education fit into the larger politics? We just saw it be essentially the number one factor in an election, which as an education journalist, you know, like that, that usually does right. not happen. Um, where do you think that issue of education and and pushing back against some of the extremes within education is going to align itself um, and what is is its going is its role in our politics going to be going forward? So a couple years ago, I was in the living room of my apartment, which actually, funnily enough, is only a few miles from the house that, in which we're currently in. And uh, I was listening to some Ben Shapiro stuff because you know I was listening to him, you know, before. smacking down you know Thug Live videos and things that you watch every once in a while, just kind of you know psych yourself up in the crazy world that we're in. And it flipped to a discussion between Dave Rubin, Ben Shapiro, and Jordan Peterson, and it was on philosophy. I had never really cared or studied about philosophy. I mean, I studied theology um, a little bit, and that was kind of like enough for me. And I had never really looked into a whole lot of like the classical framework and, and why you learned in education and, and how it worked and, and why we dig into politics as, as a, a virtuous thing and not, you know, something to argue about. And I stopped cleaning in my apartment and I sat down on the couch, which I, I like to clean. I'm, I'm one of those weirdos. I actually like to meticulously make you sure your that, oil too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Apparently. Yeah. I, that, that, that's gotten a lot of mileage this last week. No pun intended. So I ended up grabbing Peterson's 12 rules for life. And, uh, I find it interesting because I had never really cared about a lot of those things, but I had sat down and I'd listened to that thing. It was a three hour conversation. And I sat there glued to the screen because it was interesting to hear people talk about it. And I felt a calling to dive into purpose and being it changed how I taught. And I went to the classical learning test exam summit in Annapolis very recently. And I got to hear a lot of speakers wax eloquently on classical beauty and on things that I've always appreciated, but didn't really know why like architecture, like I've always loved really beautiful old architecture. It's an old joke with me that the thing I hated the most about the Reformation is that the Catholics got the good architecture in the divorce. 
And I've really been astounded by those things, but I didn't know why I liked them. And when I consider my theories on education, I think that I am starting to come around to the idea that what kids need right now is a return to understanding the classical theories and beauty and reason and understanding and not trying so hard to be out in the front on like the progressive end of things that we end up ripping out the foundation by, you know, taking planks from the floor to build onto the roof, which is what we've really started doing in education. I think that we really need to return to looking at beauty at virtue and through the classical stuff that, that Jeremy Wayne Tate and his crew are, are doing for sure. Split that down the middle and couple it with trades education. I mean, seriously, I think that the, taking a classical approach and gluing it to trades education with a little sprinkling of uh, one room schoolhouse-esque kind of Freemasonic apprentice and the master together mentorship encouragement is what I see that education should be at the moment. And that is subject to change because I'm still very young and don't know everything. Uh, one of the, the sad things about getting older is that you still don't know anything and that you lose confidence in the things that you thought you once knew. So in many ways, in terms of the feeling of knowing everything, you go backwards. <laughs> Good. You I have something to look forward to. <laughs> um, uh, but thank you. Thank you so much for for coming on High Noon. Um, anyone can find you at over on Twitter at, at the Tonus, T-O-N-U-S. Um, and, and can find your columns again at national review, daily caller, federalist, um, but definitely check out Talkboard review for, for Tony's columns, as well as, um, his colleague, Daniel Bucks, his co-founder, uh, of, of the Chalkboard review and all of the heterodox teacher thoughts that they, they publish there on, on curriculum, on pedagogy, on politics, um, on just about everything. So it, it's a real great website. I highly recommend that people check it out. And uh, thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave. We'll see you next time on High Noon. <laughs>